You'll turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This morning we will begin the Gospel of Luke. And we will look at certainty concerning Jesus this morning. The key words for our worshipers in training are certain, account, and gospel. And we begin this morning with what will be uh, thus far my biggest undertaking while ministering among you here at Ephesus Church. My goal is to get through the gospel of Luke in about 18 months. But I want to be sensitive to whatever the Holy Spirit is doing and speed up and slow down as necessary as we walk through this gospel. Time to time we may take breaks for various seasons. But overall I'm very excited about taking on the gospel of Luke. As we get into this gospel, there are several things that I'm praying for, and I hope that you will join me in praying for. I want to share those first before we get into the text. <clears throat> Six things to be praying for as we walk through this gospel. First and foremost is that the Lord will give us all a greater certainty of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will be able to understand more deeply why we believe what we believe. And that we will have absolute assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. This is why Luke, we'll see in a moment, why Luke has written this gospel account. And therefore, I pray that his purposes for doing so would be fulfilled in our midst. Secondly... I want to pray that the Lord will show us how every text in the Gospel of Luke and certainly every text in the Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will see that as we walk through this Gospel. Third, I want to pray that we will have greater, a greater love for Christ in light of what He has done and is doing on our behalf and that the Gospel of Luke will continue to reveal that to us more and more. <clears throat> Fourth, I want us all to be praying that we will be more and more gospel saturated and working toward fulfilling our mission to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. I have a conviction that if we really dig into the gospel of Luke, and if we think hard, if we meditate on these texts, if we apply the gospel, the words of this gospel to our lives and prayerfully ask God to transform our minds and be conformed to his word through Luke, I have a conviction that we could develop a reputation as being a people who are constantly talking about Jesus. All the time, whatever we're doing, whoever we're talking to, that we just can't talk about Jesus enough because we're so incredibly dumbfounded by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what He continues to do. And we want everyone else we encounter to know about Him. 
That's what I want for us. And I have a hunch that the Lord will move us in that direction as we journey through the gospel of Luke and if we take it seriously. I want that to be who we are. Those people at Ephesus Church, all they ever talk about is Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus that. Lord, may it be so. Fifth, I want to pray for non-believers. Those who know they're non-believers and those who do not know that they are non-believers. I pray that skeptics would hear the gospel that they would hear the undeniable evidence of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and that they would repent of their sins and believe in the Gospel. I want to pray that our baptismal pool would stay filled with water because of what God is doing in the hearts of lost men and women, bringing them onto Himself. The Gospel of Luke would be the means by which they see and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's keep our deacons busy over there. And sixth, of course, most importantly, we want to pray that God is glorified in our journey. As I attempt each week, by God's grace, to hold up Jesus Christ as the all-satisfying, all-sufficient, all-glorious, preeminent Savior of the world. We pray that He is glorified through our journey through the Gospel of Luke. So, let's get started. Let's read together Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, we know that Luke was not an apostle, but rather he was part of what has been referred to as a second generation of Christians. The first generation were those apostles and other eyewitnesses, those who were in direct contact with the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly life and ministry. And Luke will discover in more detail in just a bit, he was not in direct contact with Jesus. He tells us that himself, but he was an associate. He was a friend. He was a co-laborer of the apostles, but he himself did not have a direct contact with Jesus during his time on the earth. Therefore, he did not meet the qualifications for being an apostle. We read what those qualifications are in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. They were seeking to find a replacement for Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and Peter gave those qualifications for what they were to look for. He, he said, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And this was the qualification for one to be an apostle. This was not Luke. He was not an eyewitness. 
And in these first few verses of the gospel account, we see that he admits to that very fact. Also, it is fair for us to assume that Luke is a Gentile. His name itself is a Gentile name. He is undeniably the most skilled of all of the New Testament writers in his use of the Greek language. And in Colossians chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul referring to, he refers to his fellow Jewish workers in verses 10 and 11, but then he tells us that there are others with him. And among those others with him, he includes Luke. You can read this in Colossians 4 verses 12 through 14. So as a Gentile, Luke is writing to another Gentile. The three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, are uniquely Jewish in how they are written. Luke has an eye specifically on the Gentiles. And most likely, Luke wrote his Gospel account in the early 60s of the first century, within what we understand to be 30 years of Christ's resurrection and ascension. Now, from what we understand of Luke, from what we see in the Scripture, nothing definitive can be said about his conversion. He makes no reference to it. How it happened, when it happened, we don't see any of that in the Scriptures. It does seem obvious, though, that he reached greater Christian maturity prior to his interaction with the Apostle Paul. He was a great help to Paul by the time they met, by the time they began doing ministry together. How do we know this? Well, the book of Acts was also written by Luke, and it indicates that Luke and Paul had a very close relationship. They spent a considerable amount of time with one another. There are several times in the book of Acts where we see Luke speaking of travels with Paul and he says, we did this and we did that. These are the we sections of the book of Acts. So Luke was including himself in those journeys and in that work. So Luke was with the apostle Paul during his imprisonment also when all others had abandoned him. Just prior to the time when the Apostle Paul was martyred, Paul wrote to Timothy explaining that all others had deserted him. And he wrote in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. He's a very faithful brother in the Lord to, to remain with the Apostle Paul in prison prior to his martyrdom. Now, we know of Luke that his primary calling in life, his primary vocation, we see in Colossians 4.14, was that of a physician. He was a doctor. Luke the doctor. Luke the physician. John Stott writes about this. It is, it is telling of a man who has the power and authority to do the kind of work that he himself had been trained to do but at depths undreamed of and in regions unexplored and with effects so far-reaching as to confound his own elementary ideas of healing and salvation. In other words, the doctor Luke is writing about the good doctor, the great physician, the mighty healer, the God of all comforts. And so he sees in what he is doing how much greater it is done in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And for Luke, the work of a doctor and the work of a savior were in many ways one in the same. While we have two words, heal and save, the Greek language only has one word. To the Greeks, to save a man and to heal a man were fundamentally the same thing. So Luke was right at home to write about the man who is God, who came into the world to deliver men from both sickness and from sin. But in addition to being a physician, there's no doubt that Luke was also a very skilled historian. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And these two works combined, believe it or not, make up more writing of the New Testament than any of the other writers. So Paul wrote 13 letters, but if you put it all together, it's less than what Luke wrote in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Luke gave some very lengthy accounts, and we will look at how he came to his conclusions as we dig further into these verses before us this morning. Now, what we'll find in the weeks ahead as we... Uh, journey through this gospel is that in addition to being a physician, in addition to being a historian, Luke is also a very wonderful theologian. The most prominent theological emphasis of the gospel of Luke is that of love. The gospel of Matthew emphasizes primarily the kingship of Jesus, his royalty, The emphasis of the Gospel of Mark is on the power of Jesus, his divine omnipotence as Savior and Lord. But Luke's emphasis is on the love of Jesus. This is something that will shine through in most of what we see that Luke has written. This is also a point that we must emphasize the importance of thoroughly studying all of the gospel accounts, not just one. We need to see the various angles that the writers bring to our understanding of the Lord Jesus and what he has done. God has divinely inspired that each have a different emphasis that we have a more holistic understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as a writer to Gentiles, Luke has really taken a very wide-angle view of the world. Many of the scholars call this Luke's universalism. Now, this is not in the sense that he believes that God will save every human being. We know that's not true, but rather in the sense that there is no person that the gospel cannot reach. There is no boundary that the gospel cannot cross. It's the very thing the Apostle Paul is writing about in Galatians 3.28 when he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Luke's implication is not that everyone will be saved, but rather that anyone can be saved. And that is a wonderful reality. Now, if you step back and take in the entire gospel of Luke and really take it in conjunction with the book of Acts, we could very easily give Luke's two volumes a book title. If we put them together, we could call it Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's his emphasis as he writes through Luke and Acts. So this is our author, Luke. Ken Hughes writes, Luke, the historian, will make you certain about the gospel. Luke, the theologian, will touch you with God's love and grace. 
Luke the physician will help you to love people. So the remainder of what we would like to know about the Gospel of Luke is contained in these first four verses. So let's look at each of them, and then we'll look to some application. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So right up front, Luke identifies the importance of what he is writing. It is something so important that many others have already undertaken the task of compiling the facts to tell the story of the subject matter at hand, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't appear from this that Luke is implying that what has already been written is insufficient, but rather that he's making an attempt at continuing on the story, continuing to add to and compile all that has been said. He's not seeking to correct anything necessarily that's been written, but rather he's just saying there are many sources available that have been written, that people are speaking of, concerning the facts of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very significant for a historian who is compiling a narrative. He is compiling a historical account Now he goes on to explain that the writings are writings that concern the things that have been accomplished among us. What I find interesting is the statement, in the statement is this word accomplished. Now typically when we talk about accomplishing something, we're we're simply talking about having finished a task, whatever it might be. Having completed some kind of work. While it may seem a small nuance, it really helps us to understand Luke's emphasis in writing when we understand that he's writing about specific things that have been caused to happen with a specific end purpose in mind. In other words, it's not just that things were accomplished, but that those things were purposed to happen. In other words, their purpose in fulfillment is not just a reaction to circumstances as they arrive. The significance of this rests in the fact that Luke says that these things have been accomplished among us. But remember, Luke is not an eyewitness of Jesus, so what is he referring to? He's referring specifically to those who are believing recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Christ. So it seems that Luke's point is that he is writing a historical account, as others have also done, to make a record of Jesus' life and ministry as to show that he fulfilled all that was prophesied about him. And these things that he has written are the things most surely believed among the Christians. This is what I see in verse 1. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Now here in verse 2, we see that Luke is identifying the fact that he was not an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. But rather, the facts that he is presenting in this gospel account are from those who were indeed eyewitnesses to the ministry 
of Christ. They were ministers of the gospel now. When he says eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, he's not speaking of two separate groups of people here, but rather referring to the same people in two different ways. A literal translation of this would be those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and became ministers of the word. Now, what they saw and what they proclaim has been delivered to us. They saw it, they wrote about it, they talked about it, and now I am compiling their works to give an orderly account of what they have reported. Luke wants to make sure that it's known that the historical account he is giving is from the best, most authentic, written, and oral sources available. In a way, it's as if Luke is saying, if you don't believe me, you can go talk to all the eyewitnesses that I've had contact with and I've consulted concerning these issues. And given that he wrote within 30 years of the resurrection of Christ, there would have been numerous eyewitnesses that anyone could have gone to speak with. So Luke is simply explaining why his writing is reliable, why we can trust what he has written. He's explaining that he is a historian in the same way that we come to trust any other work of history. We examine the facts. We compare those facts with any other works, any other sources regarding the same issues, see how they compare, and we determine whether or not what is being claimed is accurate. And so Luke is saying, in essence, I'm presenting you a historical account. There are many other sources you can go check to see that what I am saying is indeed accurate. The Apostle Peter was one of those eyewitnesses that that Luke is referring to. He walked with Jesus as one of his closest disciples. And about the claims that Peter wrote, he said this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." And so Peter himself is saying, I saw these things. I was there. I walked with Jesus and I saw what he did. We're not making this stuff up. And there were thousands of other eyewitnesses at the same time that anyone could have consulted. And while many want to deny the reality, I ask at least... Why would it be that anyone would submit themselves to a brutal death on a cross? You know, Peter was crucified upside down. Why would he die such a death to defend something that he knew was a lie? 
It doesn't make any sense. Peter and hundreds and maybe thousands of other Christians in that time died brutal deaths because they would not waver from their absolute certainty, not of what they made up, not of what they thought maybe they heard, but what they were eyewitnesses to. They saw it with their own eyes. They experienced it in their own lives. It seems a bit over the top to think that they would knowingly lie and then when the day of their death came that they would continue to hold to these falsehoods. At that point, who in their right mind wouldn't say, I was was just kidding. I just wanted to see how far I could take this thing, but it's getting kind of serious now, so let's just be cool. Put down the torches, everything's going to be okay. I didn't do that. I didn't do that at all. And so you see, Luke's not just writing about what comes to mind or what he has heard was the word on the streets. He's writing based upon the eyewitness accounts of people who willingly died for the very things he's writing about. He's writing about those, the words of those who were ministers of the gospel which we could just as easily say were men who were willing to die brutal, horrible deaths instead of claiming that what they say they were eyewitnesses to wasn't real. Who knowingly dies for a lie? Not hundreds and hundreds of people who all claim to have been eyewitness to the very same thing. It just doesn't happen. Now... Because of how Luke compiled his gospel account, most scholars are in agreement that he probably relied in part upon the gospel account of Mark. Luke is most certainly much lengthier than the gospel of Mark. He covers more specific details of the life and ministry of Jesus. But where the same facts are covered in both gospel accounts, quite often it appears that Luke is relying very heavily on what Mark has written. I think that's a valid um, assumption. Now, Luke most certainly relied upon others as well. Given the attention to detail and the length of his gospel account, we recognize that he has looked to others to help him as well. Luke writes about several things that aren't mentioned in the other gospels at all, some of which are the most well-known passages in all the Bible. To begin with, the entire content of the first two chapters of the book of Luke detailing the coming of Christ, beginning with the histories of Zechariah and Elizabeth, then the announcement given to the Virgin Mary, and then, of course, the incarnation of Christ itself, the birth of Jesus. We we also can only look to Luke for the stories of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man was he. We only see that in the book of Luke. We see... The story of the repentant thief. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the very famous parables of the Pharisee and the publican, the rich man and Lazarus, and the prodigal son. Luke is the only one who writes about these accounts. So Luke tells us that he's received what he has written from reliable sources. And what was accomplished is now being delivered. The word is now being preached. So Luke is very absolute in his assertion that he's not presenting a theory. He's not presenting 
an idea or a philosophy or even a religion. He is writing a historical account. He's writing about things that have really happened. Luke has done the work of an investigator. He has provided an orderly account. He has followed all things closely for some time past, is what he says. So it's not a quick throwing together of ideas at the last minute. This isn't Luke writing his paper the night before it's due. He's taken his time. He's examined the facts. He's weighed the evidence. He's thoroughly investigated the claims and he has meticulously written an orderly account. And as we read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that what he is writing is a systematic arrangement around specific themes that he wishes to emphasize. Now, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Gospel of Luke is arranged chronologically, but much of it is not. He doesn't promise to do this, but it doesn't mean that it's inaccurate in any way. Luke, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, has written to ultimately present the gospel with what he believed would be maximum power. He has a good reason for writing exactly as he does. To him, a logical or topical connection is more important than a precise chronological sequence through the gospel. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote concerning the arrangement of the gospel, Luke has less regard to chronological order than Matthew or Mark and rather classifies the events than narrates them in a series, a method of composing history not uncommon with the writers of antiquity. But we have to recognize also that it's not merely history that Luke is writing. The gospel does something to people to whom it is proclaimed. And that's where we're headed. That's why we're going to spend so long in this book, because through His Word, God saves, God transforms, God reconciles men unto Himself. We want to strive to proclaim that very same message, the same Jesus story that the eyewitnesses were proclaiming and that the second generation Christians were writing about because no matter who it was, they also expected that it was going to be effective and they saw with their very own eyes its effectiveness. And it is the same today. The writer of Hebrews tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John Stott writes, Here then is a version of the things accomplished and delivered. It should whet our appetite, especially if we've become too accustomed to living on spiritual snacks, to know what pains Luke has taken to prepare this feast. It consists basically of the living facts which were common to all the early Gospels, but it has been carefully prepared, supplemented with extra courses, and attractively served. We owe it more than a quick nibble. This is where we're headed. This is why knowing, understanding, dwelling on the Gospel of Luke is so important. So we've looked at who wrote the Gospel of Luke, how he wrote it. Now let's consider to whom he is writing and why. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. We see the Gospel of Luke is written specifically to one man named Theophilus. Now, you will notice that Luke wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus as well. He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's referring back to the Gospel of Luke, and he goes on to explain what he's going to write in the book of Acts. But who is this man that Luke is calling most excellent Theophilus? Well, because of the meaning of his name, some have suggested that Theophilus wasn't actually a man at all, but rather symbolically representing a group of people. Theophilus in the Greek is, uh, is a combination of the words theos, God, and philos, lover of or loved by. So loved by, lover of or loved by God would be the name Theophilus. But it seems rather clear that Theophilus was in fact a man because Luke calls him most excellent. What is obvious about Theophilus is that he was a Gentile and at the very least he's a man worthy of some kind of high honor. The only other time Luke writes about someone and calls them most excellent is when referring to Felix who was the the Roman governor of Judea and his successor, Festus, in the book of Acts. So it's been suggested most often that Theophilus is some sort of governing Gentile authority. J.C. Ryle says, We know nothing certain about this person. The prevailing opinion is that he was some Christian Gentile in a high position to whom Luke, for wise reasons unknown to us, was directed to address himself in writing his gospel. The expression most excellent seems to indicate that he was no common person. But more important than who Theophilus is, is to recognize that the gospel of Luke is very much for us as well. God has given it to us in the Bible, and so it's important for us to ask the question, why? What reason does Luke give for having written his gospel account? He writes in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts, were both written to help Theophilus and all subsequent readers know the truth of the Christian teaching that Luke had heard, that Luke had read about, that Luke is now writing about, that he believed and has thus come to have a well-grounded faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, whether or not Theophilus was a Christian or still skeptical about the claims of Christianity at the time of Luke's writing is unknown. But what Luke writes is that his historical account is written to give him certainty about what he has already been taught about Christianity. But most certainly, Luke had in mind something far beyond Theophilus simply having an intellectual knowledge of Christianity. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Luke tells his readers, read what I have written, and you will see the facts 
upon which Christianity is based. You will find something firm and solid and absolutely trustworthy, a sure, firm foundation upon which to build your faith. But there's something here that Luke writes I really want to narrow in on. It's this word, certainty. Luke writes, I want you to have assurance. I want you to have a deep, thorough knowledge. What's implied here is that Luke wants us to have certainty in our minds as well as understanding the truth in a way that penetrates our hearts. And how does this happen? Does does Luke mention some mystical experience? Where we, we sleep with our Bible under our pillow and wake up each morning with more and more biblical wisdom? Is it by specific prayers or specific physical actions that we take part in? Is it a deep study of philosophy? No, it's none of these. It's very simple. It's reading and meditating on the plain facts of the story of Jesus Christ. Luke very simply lays this down. Read and think about these things that I've written and you will come to know the basic certainties of life. I want to chat about that for a minute because there are two ditches that we need to avoid in this. The first is turning to the Bible only in intellectual study that feeds and fills the mind but has no actual interaction with our hearts. Study, 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 read, 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 think, argue, but never apply, never turn to the Lord Jesus in prayer, never seek the humility, gentleness, grace, love, peace, patience, and self-control that comes from being a Christian. It's entirely possible that there are some in here this morning who have heads full of theological and scriptural knowledge and can theologize me into the ground, but have hearts that are solid and cold, just like a Siberian rock. This was the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' time, wasn't it? They could talk the talk all day long, and externally they can make it look like they had everything down to a T. But when it came to walking the walk, Jesus said, You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So biblical knowledge, knowing something about God in the Bible, without a heart that's transformed and worked out in biblical application, is absolutely useless knowledge. It does no good. We need to avoid that ditch. The second, though, is what I think in American Christianity is far far more likely to happen. This is the blind leap of faith. This is the, you just got to believe. It's just me and Jesus. It's that ditch. Listen, I can assure you, if Christianity was just about taking a blind leap of faith and just believing without anything of substance to base it on, I would not be standing here right now. I am far too cynical and skeptical and sarcastic to just believe something 
that someone says, you just got to believe. You just got to have faith. Just have faith in what? What do I have faith in? Do you notice Luke's not writing and saying, Theophilus, I'm just writing to tell you, man, you just got to have faith. Just believe. You know what that is? That's not Christianity. That's Mormonism. That's what they'll tell you. Read the Book of Mormon. And they don't tell you to investigate to see if it's historically true. And let me assure you, it fails that test big time. But they say that you'll get a burning in your heart that confirms that it's true. Read it, ask God to tell you if it's true, and if your heart is warm, then it must be true. Doesn't that sound similar to a lot of what you hear coming out of American evangelicalism? Base your faith upon some experience you had at summer camp or some evangelistic meeting you went to, or some feeling you get, or speaking in tongues, or just try Jesus and you'll like it, because after all, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your best life now. That's what we hear. It's laughable to think that Luke would say, just pray and ask God to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling, and then you'll know it's true. No, Luke wrote 52 chapters and in doing so shows that it's very important to seek to persuade people of the truth of Christianity. And faith is an acceptance and a readiness to act upon what one is persuaded to be true. Now, of course, Luke does not, nor should we, rule out the absolute necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I would remain dead in our trespasses and sins, and no one would ever own up to the truth of the gospel. We see an example of this in Acts 16. Luke writes about Lydia and explains that she listened, she heard Paul's compelling sermon by the river, So she was hearing facts. She was being persuaded by the truth of the gospel by Paul. But then he says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. So shall we persuade people of the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. Does it fully depend on the work of the Holy Spirit? 100%. So if God does not open the heart of Theophilus, if God does not open our hearts... All of Luke's writing is in vain. But the Holy Spirit does not replace persuasive words. He empowers them. He removes prejudices that keep people from giving heed to the truth. So it's important that we know the word of God and we continue to plead with men to repent and believe the gospel. There will be those who say, yeah, but all someone really needs to know is that God loves them. And after all, love unites, but doctrine divides. We can't, we can't persuade people by telling them they're sinners and they're under the wrath and judgment of God. Listen, the, the most unloving thing any of us can do is to knowingly allow someone to continue in this world without pointing them to the truth that they are under the wrath of God. The foolish notion that love unites but doctrine divides is completely contrary to the Bible itself. Why did God give us 66 books? Does it take 66 books for God to say, I love you, just pray a simple prayer and you'll be fine. 
Nowhere does the Bible even hint at the try Jesus. You just got to have faith mentality. Likewise, we cannot rely upon telling others, Jesus works for me and he could work for you too. Just try it. Just try it and see how it goes. That's an appeal to emotion and experience. And once again, it's not the way the Bible directs men to the truth. While it is absolutely true that Jesus is the source of our ultimate lasting joy, that is not why we follow him, nor how we ought to encourage anyone else to follow him. The Christian life is difficult. And there are times when it does not feel joyful. So we don't trust Jesus because of our experience We trust Him because of His finished work on our behalf. And we embrace His Lordship because we believe His Word to be true. It's quite the opposite of basing our hope on experiences and feelings. And Luke is going to detail the facts of the life and ministry of Jesus that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. That way we may have certainty about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, I fully realize that there will be people who will say that this is just a big waste of time. The Bible's made up. It's a fairy tale. It's ridiculous to claim to know that ultimate reality exists and to call on others to live by it. You know, it's... It's intellectually inconsistent to say that there is no absolute reality. Think about that. Because the very moment you claim that ultimate reality is unknowable, you've just claimed the very knowledge that you said can't be known. You following? So the second you say, you cannot know ultimate reality, ultimate truth is unknowable, you've just claimed... What you said can't be claimed. You've made an absolute claim about something you believe is absolutely true. Namely, that absolute truth is unknowable. Are you absolutely sure? Luke is after those kinds of people in his gospel. He's after those who will say, there is no absolute truth. Even if God exists, he's unknowable. All religions are the same. All religions are following different paths to the same God. And it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you believe in something. It's how you live and it's about being a good person. He's after people who say those sorts of things. Does that sound familiar? You realize all of those are religious statements? They are doctrines. Those are doctrinal statements about God. They're claiming by saying there is no truth and then coming back and saying, no one can know God in his fullness. Really? How can you know that? All religions lead to God. Really? What source are you utilizing to draw your conclusion? They're absolute religious statements. So here's the irony of ironies. The relativist and me talking together are claiming the same thing at different points of emphasis. Here's what's happening. I'm the pastor with Christian theology and exclusive claims about Jesus who believes every word of the Bible is true and reliable and completely sufficient for all of life and godliness. The relativist and I are claiming the same thing. 
and understanding of ultimate reality. Only he's the one calling me arrogant and himself enlightened. That's what's happening. I'm arrogant and I'm intolerant because I say that I know ultimate reality. And because I don't really know ultimate reality and he knows ultimate reality, I'm arrogant for claiming that I know it because he really knows it. That's what's happening. And for us, all of the talk of Christians trying to convert the the world, the missionary force around this idea of ultimately knowing that we cannot ultimately know is massive compared to the missionary task in the world. We hear all the time about what the atheists are saying now what their latest ideas are. Did you know just two days ago, the most famous atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins, in an interview said, you know, I I can't say with absolute certainty that God does not exist. You're right, you can't. This is the air that we breathe. In the end, relativism zealously fights to make sure that no one believes in any absolutes while using their own absolutes to establish the very idea. So for Luke to claim that we can have certainty based upon the facts that he compiled is, to the relativist, a foolish proposition. That is, until they are persuaded by the truth that Luke presents, while the Holy Spirit works within them to bring about new life in Jesus Christ. So Luke is starting off by saying to the skeptics, to the non-believer, to the one who would reject all that we have in the scriptures, he says, let me introduce you to Jesus. You've been living your life. You're wondering what it means. You're always frustrated. You're always beat down. You're always confused. You're always depressed. You're off. You're off here. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he taught and what he accomplished and what thousands of eyewitnesses can attest to. I put it together in a thorough work from the things I've read, from eyewitnesses I've heard from. And we're still telling the same exact story in the same exact way. He says, I've I've tested it, I've researched it, I've picked it apart. And eventually my life was taken over by the absolute undeniable truth of it all. And here's the deal. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to continue to come back and to hear what Luke has to tell you from this gospel. I will promise you something. You will never hear me tell you to just believe. You will never hear me tell you to just try Jesus. You will never hear me tell you that you just got to have faith. And I want to challenge you to compile your questions, to put together all of your doubts and your objections, and let's talk. I and many other Christians in this room would be happy to take the time you need to work through those objections if you're honestly pursuing and seeking to know what's true. We're not here to pick a fight. We're not here to beat you up. We're not here to make you feel inadequate because here's what genuine Christians understand. We're all inadequate. Every single one of us in this room right now is broken and full of sin. 
And we all fall far short of what God requires of us each and every day of our lives. And we simply cannot live up to God's perfect requirement. And only one person who has ever lived has done so. His name is Jesus Christ. And he solved our inability to do all that God has commanded by suffering the wrath of God that was ours to suffer. He took the penalty that was due to us as a result of our sin, and he took it upon himself instead. And he commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to believe the gospel, to have the wrath of God appeased. So if you're not a believer in Christ... The Lord has made clear in his word that you are condemned already unless you admit your failure. Unless you recognize your sin for what it is, confess it to God, turn from it, and trust in the finished, sufficient work of Jesus on behalf of his people for your salvation. You can have certainty concerning Jesus. And I pray that God would do that work in your life even today. Right now in this moment, I pray that God would give you new life in Christ and you would be saved. And I'm going to be praying for you this week that the Holy Spirit would be pressing in on your heart showing you your sin and your need for a Savior and that you'd be beating down my door this week to tell me what God is doing in your life. I long to see you saved. I pray that God would do that for you. That's what this gospel account is about and that's where we are headed in the gospel of Luke. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've given us your word. All of your word. That we may have certainty concerning the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful. We need not simply believe in something that we cannot be sure of that we're not simply told to have faith in whatever we discern by our own minds, our own deceptive hearts, but rather that you have clearly spoken to us through your word that we can read and study and know and understand and be transformed. And that you, by your grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, illumine the truth for us to see it clearly and to place our faith in something that is sure, that is based upon fact and evidence and reality and that your truth is undeniable in what it is. Lord, I pray right now for anyone who's sitting here this morning who does not Trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That you would bring conviction in their lives because of their sin. Because they've broken your holy law that you have required us to keep. They've fallen far short of fulfilling their purpose in this life to glorify and enjoy you alone. And so I pray, God, that you would help them 
to recognize their need for a Savior, that you would awaken them and cause them to rise from the grave and to walk in the newness of life that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, do that. Do that this morning. Do that this week. And we pray, Lord, as we journey through the Gospel of Luke, that you would reveal to us the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge that is yours and yours alone. Help us to see new and wondrous things in your word, that we would be satisfied in who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished for us. Thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.